0: The love story of Jacob and Rachel continues in Genesis 29. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, it must must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week. And we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, his wife also. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. It's a heads up for you guys that, uh, you know. Valentine's Day is a day on which we celebrate romantic love the love of a girl for a boy, the love of a man for a woman. When we're very young, a simple card is an adequate expression of our affection. But as we mature in our age and relationships become more complex, a simple card no longer is adequate. And so either we want to or we're required to add flowers, candy, a movie, a dinner, to the card, which is still expected, and then we reach that age in which our hair begins to thin and all of our dimensions begin notably to change, and the simple card is once again an adequate expression of our love. This love is something other than that noble affection required by the biblical commandments to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. This is a lesser kind of love, an emotion that fades if it is not reciprocated, an attraction that has as much to do with the flesh as with the spirit and the mind, a sensation that quickens our hearts when we're young and warms our memories when we're not. From this kind of love, we as Christians should aspire to grow in our marriages to those loftier forms urged upon us by the scriptures, those levels of devotion that eventually allow us to say with Christ that my greatest pleasure in life is not derived from being served but by serving. On the ladder of human affections, romantic love is the highest rung most people in our culture reach or even desire to reach. In their sight, this kind of love demands expression of the most intimate sort. And to restrict that expression by limiting it to formal marriage or to traditional gender relationships is an offense against the most elemental of human needs that brings the advocates of sexual liberty out into the streets in angry and loud protest. To deny oneself the pleasures of romantic love or to restrict those pleasures to interaction with the one person who wears a ring identical to one's own is to commit the grossest of blasphemies to those who worship in the temples of Eros and Aphrodite. Thoughtful Christians need to be aware that a great gap has opened between the values of our culture and the values of our faith. And one sign of that gap is the infatuation of the average American with infatuation. The intrigues of British royalty and Hollywood stars are celebrated in the headlines of those newspapers we scan as we're leaving the supermarket. The behavior of TV and music stars, these people who have been made rich and famous by our collective attention, Reveals that to us as a people, the ultimate expression of romantic love is the highest form that happiness can take. A charming young man from this area is elected to the U.S. House of Representatives after running on a platform of traditional values. This past week, we learned that one of his female staff members is pregnant with his child, and this man is radiant with the thoughts of expectant fatherhood, and unembarrassed by the obvious betrayal of his constituency. In our culture, romantic love is widely believed to be the glue that holds a marriage together, which means, on the other hand, that when romantic love grows cold, the time has come to bring that marriage to an end. At some levels and in some centers of public education, young people who can't find Canada on a map of the world or calculate their own gas mileage are being trained for the fulfillment of the desires of romantic love. I don't labor under the delusion that the world around us is waiting with bated breath to know what my or your views of their behavior and their values might be. But it is no delusion that their values and their behavior have a strong influence on us and on our children. And this is my very great concern because the Bible says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. The Bible as a whole, and the book of Genesis in particular, have almost nothing to say to us about romantic love. Genesis is the Book of Beginnings. That's what the word Genesis means. It begins by relating the beginning of the universe, the beginning of life in general, the beginning of human life in particular. There we read of the beginning of sin and the beginning of redemption and the beginning of that line of people with whom God has established his covenant and is pleased to call his own. And there in the book of Genesis we read of the beginning of marriage. In a traditional Presbyterian wedding ceremony, it would be said that marriage is instituted of God and is to be regulated by his commandments. These are conclusions derived from the first book of the Bible. According to popular American culture, the glue that holds marriages together is romantic love. According to the Bible, the glue that holds marriages together is commitment. Commitment to God. Commitment to marriage in God. Commitment to one another in marriage. In Genesis, a number of marriages are mentioned, four of them in some detail, The marriage of Adam and Eve, that of Abraham and Sarah, and those of Isaac and Rebecca, and Jacob and Rachel. Only two of these involve anything involving romantic love, and one of them was more or less an utter failure. But more of that in just a minute. Given the great gulf that has opened between the values of the church and the values of our culture, Seen particularly in the infatuation with infatuation in our land, the question is, how should our awareness of this gulf influence us? You've heard me say, and you've heard me say it because the Bible says it, That the influence of the unsaved world around the church seeps like a poisonous gas under the doors and around the windows of the church and influences the people of God who are often aware, unaware of its influence. I remember times when our children were small and were introduced to other people, sometimes even in the church. It was not uncommon to hear people say to our son, you're a bright young man, I bet you've got a lot of girlfriends. Or to one of our daughters, you're a pretty girl, who's your boyfriend? More often than not, they were not asked about their schoolwork or about their music lessons. I don't recall that at any time, any one of them was asked, which is your favorite part of the scriptures, or of all of the characters of the Bible, which one would you most like to be when you grow up? Instead, in a culture infatuated with infatuation, they were asked, who's your girlfriend? Who's your boyfriend? As if this is somehow the most significant thing that we can know about a young person. Fathers, several of you have children who are at about the age at which their peers in our culture are beginning to date. What thought have you given to the subject of dating? Have you considered that the American dating scene is not conducive to that maturity and that righteousness. It is your earnest prayer your young person will aspire to. And what counsel have you given to them as they take their first steps onto the social stage of life? Have you reminded them that their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Have you spoken to them of that self-control, which is a gift of the Spirit himself? Have you reminded them why in a traditional marriage the bride wears white? And ladies, when your grieving families gather to remember and to celebrate your life, and the minister meets with them to plan your funeral service and asks them, among other things, what did she like to read? please don't give them a reason to say romance novels. May God give us first the desire and then the ability to see the many ways in which the the influence of an unbelieving world has seeped into our lives and influenced our behavior and our values. I mentioned two Genesis weddings in which romantic love played a part. The first of these was between Isaac and Rebecca. At its beginning, the story of these two has all the signs of being a love story like that popularized by Hollywood or cheap literature. Their infatuation was obvious even to strangers. They were taken with one another from first sight. In fact, it's likely that Isaac couldn't keep his hands off of Rebecca even when the family gathered around their altar to worship God. But if the story of Isaac and Rebekah teaches us anything, it teaches us that passionate, romantic love is not the foundation of a successful marriage or a wholesome family life. For as we turn the pages of Genesis, this relationship turns rancid before our eyes. And toward its end, we see these two once juvenile lovebirds drifting further and further apart. The dysfunctional nature of their relationship manifest in the petty favoritism that each of them showed to one of their twin sons, Isaac preferring Esau, Rebekah preferring Jacob. In fact, to provide the opportunity for Jacob to become the godly man he intended him to be, it was necessary for the Lord to drive Jacob far away from the influence of his manipulative mother. And that brings us to the second of these two Genesis marriages involving romantic love. Jacob's adventures are recorded in the middle chapters of the book of Genesis, and the story begins with his search for a wife. Early in the Bible, it becomes very plain that the Lord disapproves of the intermarriage of his covenant people and at least some of the non-believers in whose midst they live. And for this reason, Jacob ventured off to Haran where a remnant of his family still lived. Haran was about 500 miles away from his parents' home. Along the way, Jacob had two life-changing experiences. In the first, he met God. In the second, he met Rachel. Jacob grew up in a home dominated by his mother. From the beginning of his life, she doted on him and managed him. She picked the clothes he would wear. She decided who his friends would be. She directed him on all of the choices and decisions of life set before him. But now, away from home, for the first time in his life, Jacob was all on his own and probably very sure of himself. And one night, the historian tells us, early in his journey, he lay down to sleep in an open field and he had a dream a dream that turns out to be a delightful dream that should mean much to us as Christians. In his dream, he saw a ladder, its bottom resting on the earth, its top disappearing in the clouds of heaven over his head. And on the ladder, moving down from heaven, moving up from the earth, were angels. And near the ladder, God stood. And God said to Jacob, I am with you And I will keep you wherever you go. Like other passages of the Old Testament, we puzzle over the meaning of this vision until we come into the New Testament, and there it becomes crystal clear to us. In the first chapter of John, the same gospel in which Jesus is quoted as saying, I am the way, no man comes to the Father but by me, we hear Jesus claiming to be the ladder in Jacob's dream. And the implication of this intriguing vision is now plain. It means that heaven is too remote for any person to reach it on his own, that God must provide the way if a way is to be found, and that God has opened the gates of his eternal kingdom and lowered a ladder so that those who will might enter, and that ladder is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who would know God must know Christ. Those who would pass from earth to heaven must cling to Christ for he alone is the way. This was Jacob's first adventure. His second was his meeting Rachel. A meeting the knowledge face seems entirely coincidental, but one we understand was planned and directed by the living God. It was obviously love at first sight for Jacob. We don't know what Rachel really looked like, but we do know that God made her beautiful in his eyes. Along the way, knowing that he was going to look for a wife, knowing that God had a choice for him, Jacob must have wondered how he would know God's choice for him when he met her, what he would feel, what he would see, what the signs would be. But when he met Rachel... His reaction was so immediate, so strong, so clear, that we're told that he wept and laughed at the same time. Jacob was taken to the family home, which was that of Laban, and there he went to work. And eventually he spoke to Laban of his love for Rachel. And they worked out this arrangement so that Jacob would serve 20 year, uh, seven years, at the end of which Laban would place the hand of his daughter in that of Jacob in marriage. In the coming verses, we find the familiar story of their marriage. You may know that there are no wedding ceremonies recorded in Scripture. There are no vows or ring words or proclamations recorded in scripture. We find many references to marriage. We find several laws regulating marriage, but no marriage ceremonies, which means that we have to guess as to what weddings were like in that time. And with that in mind, I would like to describe the marriage of Jacob and his first wife in terms of what usually happens today. For reasons that Jacob could only understand later, the ceremony was scheduled for a late evening with candles providing the only elimination. The invitation spelled out the time and the place and early the church began to fill with guests for Laban, the father of bride, was well known in that community. His family was large, many considered him a friend, others did business with him. And therefore, for reasons of family ties and friendship and good relations with a trading partner, many had circled the date on their calendars, and long before the ceremony was to begin, the First Presbyterian Church of Heron was nearly full. The windows are open, a gentle breeze flows through the sanctuary, the organ plays softly in the background, the air is filled with the sounds of friendships being renewed and practiced. Then the ushers bring in the grandparents and then the parents. Additional candles are lighted. The runner is rolled into place, and the bridal party begins its entrance. From the side of the sanctuary, the groom and his attendants and the ministers take their places. And then one, the bridesmaids and the flower girl and the ring bearer and the maid of honor come down the church's center aisle. And finally, the moment that all have been waiting for, the organ takes up the strains of Mr. Wagner's familiar bridal chorus. And the guests rise as the bride on her father's arm starts down that same aisle. The two of them reach the end of the aisle where the arm of the bride is placed into that of the groom. Her father takes his place in the front pew next to the bride's mother, and the guests settle into their seats. The groom is visibly nervous, but that's to be expected. For Jacob, in addition to all of the regular reasons for being nervous at his wedding, is the additional one. There was no rehearsal, and so he's not quite sure what he's expected to do, and when he's expected to do it, the minister took time to him with him to explain all of this, but he's still not completely sure. Waiting for the crowd to settle, Jacob looks around. The first pew on the groom's side is empty, for when he left home, his father was old and weak, and that was several years ago. And his relationship with his brother Esau has gone from bad to worse. He looks at the bride's parents and he sees his soon-to-be father-in-law smiling. Or is he smirking? Jacob can't quite be sure. The lady on his arm is wearing a veil. He smiles nervously at her. He's sure that she smiles back at him, but he can't tell because of the veil. But he thinks nothing of that, for after all, it's traditional for a bride to wear a veil in her wedding ceremony. But what puzzles him, though, is the fact that the maid of honor is also wearing a veil, a veil so heavy as to disguise her features. And that seems odd to him, but he brushes it off, assuming it's either a local or perhaps a Presbyterian custom. The wedding begins. The minister drones on and on and on about in the beginning, and it isn't good for a man to be alone. And the two shall become one. And then he gets to the heart of the matter. Of the man, he asks, Will you have this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And Jacob responds eagerly, I will. Of the lady, he inquires, Will you have this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And from the veil becomes a muffled, barely audible, I will. They exchange their rings. They light their candle, they kneel for the minister's prayer, they rise and hear him declare them husband and wife, and then to Jacob he says, you may kiss your bride. With trembling hands, Jacob reaches out to lift the veil. He raises it. His smile becomes a combination of surprise and horror. And in the expectant silence of the moment, people sitting in the furthest corners of the church hear him cry out, It's the wrong girl! The woman to whom he had just pledged himself in holy matrimony is not his beloved Rachel, but her sister, Leah. In the confusion, the minister, not knowing else what else to do, signals the organist to begin the recessional march, and the couple, literally pushed by the best man and the maid of honor, make their way down the aisle into the narthex to greet the guests. And later, at the reception, Jacob seeks out his father-in-law and demands to know, what have you done to me? And Laban calmly explains that in their culture, isn't right to yet yet let a younger girl marry while her older sister is still single. And he offers his explanation without any token of embarrassment or any sign of shame. To honor tradition is not a bad thing. To honor tradition without telling those involved can be a bad thing. We read on to learn that Jacob agreed to work another seven years for the privilege of Rachel's hand. And the curtain falls on this particular drama from the life of this very important man of God. We read of Laban's deception of Jacob with a certain satisfaction. Because you'll remember that not long before Jacob's wedding, we find the story of his deception of his father, Isaac, And for this deceiver to be deceived seems strangely just and fair for us. The Apostle Paul wrote, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, that he also will reap. And this is one of the lessons that we learn from the life of Jacob. But there are others. And one of those other lessons has to do with integrity and constancy. Jacob had been deceived. It would have been consistent with unredeemed human nature for him to excuse himself from the obligations of marriage he had just publicly assumed and to strike out an anger and revenge at Laban. But Jacob, who earlier in his life almost certainly would have done these things, did not do those things. Instead, he kept his word to Leah. He kept his word to Laban. As pleased as we might be that the deceiver was deceived, may we also be deeply impressed by the growth of the character of this godly man. Theirs was a love story to its very end. Rachel's two sons, first Joseph and then Benjamin, were most like their father and closest to his heart. When Rachel died, Jacob placed a stone to mark her grave and almost certainly returned to the place from time to time to remember and to weep. And there he would pray as he is known to have prayed on one other occasions, Lord God, I am not worthy of the least of your blessings. As we read the story of Jacob, he grows before our eyes. The self-centeredness of youth becomes the righteous wisdom of maturity. The romantic infatuation of his first meeting of Rachel becomes the noble affection of a godly marriage. The steps of his life are like a ladder leading ever higher and higher in the knowledge and the adoration of God. May his steps be our steps. Let us pray. Our Father, in the inspired history of your people, we see your hand. We find it occasionally difficult to understand why certain things happened, as we do in our own lives, but it comforts us to be reminded by your word that your eye never sleeps, that no power on, heaven, on earth or in heaven can restrain your arm, that your will is somehow perfectly expressed in all of these things, And we're told that you had them recorded for our edification. We pray that we might learn their lessons. In Jesus' name.